I'm excited to share this interview with Coach Bill Courtney. Bill is the founder of a business called Classic American Hardwoods. He's well known for his Oscar winner appearance in his documentary called Undefeated, where he coached football at Manassas High School. And we had a great conversation about his social impact initiative, about not being a turkey person, which is a great story. Enjoy. I'm curious, knowing you, when you walk into a school like that, is there a different time or a different example you can give me where you were getting called out as someone who just, you can't understand, or is it, or, or do you kind of mesh with these kids right away? Um, so, unfortunately, the news, the media, and when I say media, social media, um, movies, TV shows, Netflix, Amazon Prime, all of them do a, a really, really exemplary job of sensationalizing people that live in places like North Memphis. And because we get those snippets and we're fed all of that content our whole life, we think we know what that environment looks like. And unless you immerse yourself in it, you don't. Um, no, I didn't get called out because kids are kids. These are 14, 15, 16, 17 year old kids. They say, yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. They go to school. They're trying to get through life. They're trying to be respectful. Certainly like any school, you have your outlier kids that are pains in the asses, but the vast majority of the kids. So no, I mean, what, do you have children? Yeah. When they were 14, would they call out their coaches? No. So why would the kids of Manassas call me out? They're just kids. So no, they wouldn't. The learning opportunities happen when you ask questions and the kids trust you enough to tell you the truth. And that takes a while to build. Yeah. But that's not a call out. That's a teaching moment. And learning and teaching is a two-way street if done properly. And with regard to the turkey thing, since we floated it, my first year when I got there, like I said, there were 17 kids on the team. They'd won four games in 10 years. They sucked. They're terrible. But there are a lot of good athletes out there. They just had had no level of instruction. The, the equipment was terrible. They practiced on a softball field because they didn't have a football field. And so I'd been successful as a football coach. So we started teaching X's and O's and coaching football. But it was also really apparent when we first got there that we also needed to start teaching the, the, the tenets and characteristics. I talked to you, character, commitment, integrity, teamwork, all these values and tenets that lead to a meaningful life long after the days of football are over, which is, in effect, my book, Against the Grain, is a collection of those tenets explored through the lens of kids like the ones on my football team. And so... Midway through the season, we're three and three. Now, I think three and three is pretty average, but when you've won four games in 10 years, they thought I was like a fat, redheaded version of Pete Carroll or something. They were buying into the football, and we we quit taking cheese. Yellow school buses are called cheese. We quit taking cheese up and down. I mean, when you play and it's 40 degrees at night, and you got an hour and a half drive back to the school, and you're on cheese, the kids are getting sick. They're freezing. It just sucks. So we had charter buses. We uh, started teaching ACT prep classes. We were 
We were buying new uniforms and equipment so the kids, at least for three hours of their life, felt equal on a football field rather than walking out looking like raggedy whatever. And so we were three and three and football was going. And so the whole team was yes sir, no sir, buying into the football, excited about it. But when football practice was over or games were over or weightlifting was over in the off season or whatever, half the team was doing their homework, being respectful in the classroom, buying into the important stuff. The other half the team, while 100% in the football, was back in the street, engaged in the same destructive behavior that you know, metaphorically got them to 495 in the first place, not only in football, but in life. And so I was frustrated. So every coach kind of has a guy. And I went to my guy and I said, hey, man, what do I got to do to get that half the team to buy into the important stuff like your half the team? You're all good on football, but only half of you buying into the stuff that really matters. And this is the guy that always had real conversations with me, right? This time, if you have kids, you know this tone, this dismissive tone. He kind of said, all coach, just keep doing what you're doing. I'm like, no, man, real talk. And he said, coach, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I'm like, I'm a grown-ass man. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Real talk. He said, all right, coach, real talk. I said, yeah, he said, and he almost sheepishly said, he said, coach, man, they're trying to figure out if you're a turkey person or not. And I got to tell you, my first month and a half, two months of Manassas, I'd learned a lot of phrases of vernacular that I'd never learned in my life. But turkey person was not one of them, right? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, coach, man, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, people roll into our neighborhoods and they give away gifts and hams and turkeys. And we take them because we ain't got none. But then they leave and we never see them again. Makes you wonder if they're doing that because they really care about us or they're doing that to make themselves feel good. And he looked me dead in the eyes. He said, coach, those guys are just trying to figure out what the hell you're really doing here. And I, I want to tell you something. I was getting to my business that I was starting at 5.30 in the morning, getting everything set up at lunch for seven years now. At lunch, I went to the school so that all the teachers could tell me what player was doing what wrong, trying to keep them doing right. And then I got to school at 2.45, practice from 3 to 5, 3 to 5.30. And then I would drive like hell as fast as I could out to where I live because I also coached my kids' teams then when they were little league stuff because the deal was when I'm a coach for NASA, got to coach my kids too. And then I get through it, and we would all get home about 8.30, and Lisa would have supper on the table, and we'd eat dinner, and that was seven years. Every Friday night, Saturdays, uh, Sunday, Saturday's film swap. Sunday was film study with the team. Uh, they never had spring and summer practice. We bought weights. We did it. We put a program in. And when that kid said that to me, I thought, what? You, you're, you're equating me to the person who drops off a turkey and never see me again? I am literally here more with you than I am with my own family. And I'm going to tell you something. I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to quit in the middle of the season. But there's no way I'm coming back for these ungrateful people. You can't help these folks. Quote, these folks. This is not a lie. Two weeks after I had that conversation, the Commercial Appeal, which is the daily newspaper in Memphis, not on the front page of the sports page, but the front page had a 7 by 9 picture of me coaching out there, and the title was Manassas Miracle. 
because everybody knew Manassas was the worst team in the state, and we turned it around a little bit that first year. It was Manassas Miracle, and we were talking about that at the dinner table, and Will, my third kid, first son, was about eight. Uh, we were talking about stuff, and he looked at me and said, hey, Dad, I know everything you're doing at Manassas, but what are your players' names? And I started thinking, you know, after people started walking up to me after that article came out, people in my world were coming up and saying, Bill, tell me about Manassas. I'd be like, yeah, man, I got them three and three. What else? Well, man, I got them. I got them uh, taking ACT prep classes. What else? Well, I got them new equipment. What else? Well, I got them new uniforms. What else? Well, I got them being respectful in the classroom. What else? I, I hate sagging. And for anybody who knows what sagging is, that's when you wear your pants down below your and your Hey, we show your mind, not your behind. You quit sagging. I got them pulling their damn pants up, you know? And and anytime anybody asked me anything about Manassas, I was happy to tell everybody everything I was doing. Meanwhile, some of these kids were sleeping in tubs. And if you don't know why they sleep in tubs, because in the hood, the houses are old, the tubs are cast iron. And if you put a young kid down to sleep in a tub and there's a drive-by, the bullets don't kill them when they're in the bed. I had kids getting beat out of gangs to adhere to my rules. I had kids getting called chumps and sellouts. That white coach ain't gotten under you. Homework? Homework's for chumps, man. What are you doing homework for? Let's go out and get some fried rice on the street corner. No, man, I got to do my homework because Coach Bill says I got to do my homework to be able to play. My kids were buying into all these different ideas and thoughts, getting called sellouts, getting beat out of gangs, trying to do things the right way. And anytime anybody asked me about Manassas, I was off too happy to tell them everything I was doing. Wow. Wow. And the truth is, one of the things in my book, one of my mantras is the greatest measure of the success of a leader is the actions of the followers. And if you got an organization where the followers are doing well, I'll show you good leadership. You got an organization where the followers aren't doing right, you got some leadership problems. And the truth was, I wasn't paying attention to my own mantra because the fact that half that team was in the streets messing around was my problem. So I reversed course. And anytime anybody asked me about Manassas, I started bragging about the kids just like I did to you. I started bragging about them. I backed out. I let them have the limelight. I, I got them in the paper. I started talking about the things they were doing, the extraordinary steps they were taking. And that half the team started rolling around. And that's when we went from 17 kids to 25 kids to 35 kids to 55 kids, 75 kids. We went from four and five wins to 10 wins a season. And it's a direct result of the amazing hard work those kids put in. And the one thing I did right was, was listen to one of the greatest life lessons I've ever been given by a 17-year-old kid in the hood, which is this. If you give turkeys away at Thanksgiving. That's a beautiful thing. If you serve at soup kitchens, that's wonderful. If you give gifts to the needy at Christians, it's wonderful. If by hearing the turkey person's story, you somehow get your little feathers ruffled and think, well, I do that. And I, you know, that it's a beautiful thing. The turkey person storm is this. What's your motive? What's your motive? If you're engaging in society, to try to help some people that aren't as fortunate as you for the simple edification of someone who doesn't have the things and the opportunity and the access that you have. 
that is a wonderful thing. But if you're motivated by the backslaps, the corner office, the the articles, or the or the nice things people say about you, or the way it elevates you in your own little particular society, you are in fact a turkey person, which is a fraud. And while people will say yes or no, sir, and take what you got, the minute you walk away, they will still dark hearts right through your back because they know you're not motivated by anything other than your own exaltation. And that is a turkey person. Say it's a hard test because I've learned that the further away you run from honor, the harder it'll chase you down. And so you get really tested pretty hardcore when you're trying to give everyone else the credit and everyone's trying to put you on the front page. They're trying to interview you because they want your story, right? And, you know, I think it's a really hard thing to say. It, I don't do it because it doesn't self-serve my feeling because it's going to make you feel good to give back. What I'm curious about is, what message can you send people who have not been able to experience what you've experienced? Because until you experience something that's so life-changing from your perspective, it's hard to go through that transition from being a turkey person to being someone who's doing it for, I don't want to say the right motives, because like you said, it's a great thing when people are giving back and thank God people are doing it, right? Because who knows what things would look like if people weren't even doing that. But again, I learned that people leave your office at the end of the day, everybody goes home to a different story. Everybody, right? The real effect is not the turkey. The real effect is not the ham. The real effect is not the gift. The real effect is the interpersonal connection you develop with someone who doesn't look like you, come from where you come from. And the payoff to you is going to be what you learn about the humanity of people that you normally don't interact with. And that only happens if the people you seek to serve see your motives as pure. That's what it's about. And that's when your life changes for the better. And I'm a walking emblem of that. And um, it's why we started an Army of Normal folks, is to tell those stories. And it's why this turkey, I mean, there's going to be a turkey person billboard in Times Square starting Monday. <laughs> and all it's going to have is two uh, a, a suit and a dress looking like a person with two turkey heads coming out the top of it. And it's simply going to say, don't be a turkey person. So and, let me ask you a question. What does that look like? Does that look like for people who are going to go give on Thanksgiving and they typically, maybe they go and they, they help. Is it actually doing more than what you're saying they're doing? Or is it the connection while they're there that you're talking about? It's well, it, I don't think it has anything to do with Thanksgiving. I was coaching football in August. Sure. I got I, it. Um, it's just because Turkey and Thanksgiving, people will be more maybe interested in a picture, two turkeys dressed up like a man and a woman during Thanksgiving. And the whole idea is just to drive them to, uh, a website that has content about what a turkey person is, basically telling the story I just told you to get people to think about what... Lots of people serve all year long. Many more people serve during the holidays. They, 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 you know, we get this warmth feeling and we all want to do something and our new, and our new year's resolution is to do some good somewhere. And so while people are in that festive philanthropic holiday spirit, we just wanted to reach out to people and challenge them to think about their motives and their commitment. And so, 
Um, we're putting up this billboard and obviously trying to drive traffic to our podcast, but also in doing so challenge people to think about, am I doing what I'm doing for the right reasons? And does my service connect with the people I'm trying to serve, not through the gift or the ham or the turkey, but through my humanity? Okay, let me ask you this question. If you and I are having a conversation three years from now, and we're looking back at the past 36 months, what would specifically have to happen for you to feel like you're happy with the progress that you've made with your initiative? Um, I want a mil million weekly listeners. Um, and I want to tell you something. Um, an army of normal folks, well, it's hard. Uh, all right, you, you, you're just going to have to, I, I'm going to do this as quick as I can. I do a lot of interviews and I was being interviewed by this guy. And this one particular day, it was something in the news cycle that was so obvious what happened and what the solutions were. But I watched CNN and Fox and Newsmax and CNBC, and it was like we were living on four different planets with a very obvious situation. And I was particularly perturbed because I stay perturbed with our political class and our national media class. I stay perturbed with it. And it both sides, by the way. And um, I was being interviewed that day. And during the interview, I said something. And the interviewer said, well, what do you think is going to change it? And I said, let me tell you something. There are roads all over our, our, our country, in every city, in Memphis, in every, every city, where when you're driving by that road or that viaduct on the interstate, you do not want your car to break down. You do not want to have a flat tire. You're thinking, if I change a tire out here, I'm getting mugged. I do not. And then as the car safely passes by and you peer down that street, you see all that poverty and despair and disenfranchisement, or you look over the edge of the viaduct on the interstate and you see all the dilapidated stuff and you see the people down there, you think to yourself, man, somebody ought to do something about that one day as if your sentiment means a damn thing. And it does not. I suggest we kick that rearview mirror about 15 degrees to the left and look ourselves in the face and say, maybe I could do something about that one day. I don't, I think government has proven woefully inadequate. I think there's a lot of initiatives that are out there that are 50, 60, 70, 40 years old that were probably well-intentioned that have now just kept people in. My argument would be that our government in some way through these systems and all are, it could be argued as paternalistic. Um, and I think our national media is incented by an enormous amount of wealth and power to continue to craft narratives that divide us. So they're not fixing anything. And I'm just sick of it. And I think the only thing that's ever going to fix anything is an army of normal folks, us, just people like you and me, matching our passion with our discipline, our, our discipline, our abilities, our talents, matching our passion with our discipline in an area of need and employing it. And if we had an army of normal folks across this country, we wouldn't need the political class. We wouldn't need the medical class. And I don't care how you vote, how you worship, if you're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, it doesn't matter who you are, who you love, how you vote or how you worship. We can all celebrate anybody, regardless of how you vote, think, feel, or love. 
anybody who for the right reasons are helping people in their community, we can all celebrate that. So it's a it's something that that also crosses the divisiveness. If we just had an army of normal folks going to work. And I said that in this interview. Well, seven minutes later, this guy calls me up and he says, hey, do you really feel the way you felt in that interview? I hadn't quit thinking about what you said. And I was like, uh-oh, did I cuss? I, I didn't. And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah, I feel that way. It reminded me what I said. And he said, I want to start a podcast called An Army of Normal Folks that you're the host and you run around and we'll find them. Iron Light Labs has a large network. We'll find people. You interview normal people doing extraordinary things in their community and let's highlight these stories. They'll be entertaining. They'll be thoughtful. They'll be well-produced. But hopefully, they'll be inspirational and thought-provoking and incent people to get involved. And I said, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. So we released for a month. So we've been as high as number 10 in the country on Apple. And it's because, not me, it's because these stories go. And so what I found out is... This thing has an opportunity, have an enormous amount of impact to inspire people to do things and not be a turkey person, but be motivated by the right things to do great things. And I think it could change a lot of our society and culture. This is the longest winded answer to any question you've ever asked. I apologize. But the question was, three years from now, what would I consider success. And I said, a million listeners, it's not so I can make a bunch of money. My podcast is a nonprofit. It's because if I had a million weekly listeners, two million weekly listeners, that means there's two million people engaged in being in an army of normal folks. And if we could do that, I do think we could change a lot of what's ailing us in our society and culture. And we could have an alternate voice to the political class and the national media class that seeks to do nothing but divide us for their own power and wealth. I have a question for you. So a lot of people listen to the podcast and then they turn their podcasts off and they go about their day and everyone's busy, distracted with their phones beeping in their pockets and buzzing next to their pillows at night. What would you rather have? That million or two million people? but not knowing the impact that they're actually having because they actually were doing something. Because you could have the best intentions in the world, but if you're not doing anything, it doesn't mean much. Or your podcast isn't successful and it's got a low number of users, but you hear that success story of someone's life changing. I think the latter all day, every day. You know, I had someone- About me. It's really, look, dude, I've got a business. I've got a beautiful wife. Here's the other thing. I'm fat and redhead. My wife is a dime and she is- gorgeous. She's hot. I can't wait to get home and chase around the house when I get home tonight. I've got four well-adjusted kids living in Montana, DC, Dallas, and Atlanta. Two of them are engaged. I have a great life. I do not need a podcast. I do not need to make any money off a podcast. I don't need a book. I don't need, I don't need any of it. I really don't. And if it ends today, it ends today. I'm happy. All right. Like I said earlier, Lisa and I decided to use this platform, this odd story that happened in my life, to try to exact some measure of change in thought um, through my experiences, share those experiences and those thoughts to maybe to get people to consider a way to go against the grain of societal preconceived notions that we seem to have about one another and about certain sects of our society. 
And if the next step in that is this podcast at Army of Normal Folks, and that becomes an initiative, great. If if it just kind of keeps slow numbers, fine. But if we if we reach some people and things change, that's re- honest to goodness. I'm not trying to be some southern all shucks, false humility, you know, bullcrap guy. I genuinely mean it. I just want a better world for my kids. How does it translate over to your company? So you have all these people, and I don't know how your your time management must be exceptional because for you to coach multiple teams and also grow a company and have over 100 employees, that's hard. That's hard stuff. People who are not an entrepreneur wouldn't be able to understand what that means. And not only that, when you cross 100 people, things change because you can't keep the same culture that you had when you had 30, 40, 50 people. So that's so true. It's incredible. So how do you how do you translate from one life to that next life because you're living you're living in two different worlds, but yet you're a very genuine person. And I would imagine you are who you are. You're not going to change. You're not going to change. You know, you may have to change a hat, but you're you are who you are. I can tell that from you just from talking to you. But how how much of a different world are you walking into when you go to your business versus you're going to school? Carnegie sales class. I don't know. Did you ever do it? But I was a Dale Carnegie graduate and a facilitator. Uh, wasn't it Carnegie that said you needed to be a chameleon? Yeah, sure. He's full of crap. <laughs> I think that is the worst bit of advice on the face. That's why I said, and for you, you are who you are, and I can tell that about you. You're genuine. Yeah, so you asked the question. I, I promise you this is me at work. This is me coaching football. This is me on the podcast. This is me writing the book. This is me in speeches. This will be, I'm going to New York for a press junket in two weeks. This will be me there too. This was me on Ellen DeGeneres. This is me. I am, this is me. And I believe the core fundamental tenets of character, commitment, integrity, honesty, civility, the dignity of hard work. I believe all of those core value and tenets, I think you employ them in raising children. I think you employ them in your marriage. I think you employ them in your business and your coaching and in anything that you do and be real honest and, and understand that whatever blessings you have in your life and the richness of blessings that I've been given in my life are just that gifts. I, I am, I have no idea why I was born in the United States with all of the trimmings and wrappings available to me and have been given all of the gifts I've been given. And I, I, I see working to elevate those who aren't as fortunate as you in your society. I don't see it as a good thing to do. I see it as requirement of those gifts. And, and I don't think you can work with CEOs of, of multinational banks or go call on multi-billion dollar accounts in Europe, which I do, and then turn around and go to the hood and coach football and change yourself. I, I don't see how you can be legitimate and authentic in that role. I can't. And so I, I don't change. You know, but you do have to know who you're talking to, right? Because the message, what I meant by what I'm not with. So my question to you was- You have to know your audience. For sure. For sure. So my question really was more what I wanted to, what I'm curious about is that when you go and you are 
you're giving your heart and soul to this team. I mean, you really, it sounds like you're pouring your whole life into having a huge impact. When you're at work, first question, do you do that with people at work? Or is the message different, meaning that is the challenge to the people at your office? Like, hey guys, we need to give back. We are an army in ourselves. We have 100 people, 140 people here. We have the we have the power to actually impact our community, right? Where in school, you're going to impact that school. So I'm just curious to know the translation of what's the message of the company? How do you walk the walk at work? Exactly what you just said, but I'm in manufacturing. So while I have 15 office staff, which would be considered white collar, the rest of the folks are black uh, are, are are blue collar, and and you know we've got. Um, forklift drivers, lumber pullers, inspectors, machine operators. Well, one of the ways that you emulate all of the things that I'm talking about is I have an entire group of people that I have an opportunity to serve every day right outside the doors of my office. I can go out there and learn their names. I can go out there and find out what their dreams are and their goals and their fears and their inhibitions. I can find out what their barriers are to success in their life. And I can help as a leader or a manager or a servant to try to show the people that work in my organization how they can attain those dreams and goals. And sometimes those dreams and goals can't exist inside my organization. So I have to work on ways to help them transition to a better place elsewhere. But when people see you do that consistently and people see your management team approach labor and folks with that, uh, with, with that, with that, level of concern and care yeah with that mentality word gets around you know and um i have a, a large number of of people that make you know 15 to 20 dollars an hour working for me well when covid was going on there was a we can we can argue this for another day but all you have to do is talk about in inner city African-American communities, all you have to do is talk about the Tuskegee experiment and you will understand why a large number of African-American in urban areas would not get the COVID vaccine. They were afraid of it and they were, they didn't trust it. And if you understand that black people at one time were, were given, were, were infected with syphilis in order to study it by the United States government, you can understand why some people in parts of our community and our society might not just want to be given a shot from the government when fear is rampant, right? Well, I have to understand that. But the only way I understand that is sit down and listen and have those conversations with people that aren't from where I'm from. And then once I understand that, I also feel like I have a, a call to say, okay, I get it. And to sit down with my employees and say, look, I get it and I support your free will to make your decision. But I also want to tell you about the science. And 
So I couldn't get people to leave work and take off work and go get their vaccination. So I just brought the vaccination to my company and I shut the whole place down for three hours. And I had doctors and nurses of color come speak with my employees of color, tell them about the science and offer them the shot at my facility. About 70% of them took it, about 30% did. But I will tell you this, we did not miss one day of operation for a COVID shutdown in a manufacturing facility. And if you'll think back to COVID, there weren't many manufacturing facilities that did not have to shut down for some period of time. And the reason we didn't miss one day is because by, by three months after the vaccination, 98% of my staff was vaccinated because they felt trusted, they felt cared for, they felt informed, and they made what the best decision was for them, not because I mandated it, but because I gave them the opportunity and treated them as grown-ass humans, gave them all the information, and also empathized with what their fears were and why. And we ended up with 98% vaccination rate and didn't shut down one day. That is an example, I guess, of what you're asking me is, how does this whole thing translate to my business? I believe in servant leadership. I believe that you are, you cannot be a turkey person, that it's going to take an army of normal folks to affect true change in our world, not the government and not the media. And I believe the way that looks as you, you employ leadership skills with all those characters by first getting to know the people you want to lead and serving them. And when you serve them, they will make a quick calculation every time you ask them to do something. You know, every time that guy gets involved, my life ends up better, or at least he tries to make things happen for me. And so he's not telling me to do stuff just to make himself better. He's doing something to make the whole organization better and my life better. So when he asks me to do something, I think I'll do it. So aren't you now, by definition, leading through service? Yeah, for sure. What, what, what would you say right now is one of your biggest uh, leadership challenges at work with the size of your company today where you and where you are today? What's one of the biggest things you struggle with? Um, oh, there's a bunch of them. But specifically with leadership is, um, you know, I don't care what the government statistics and metrics say. When interest rates are up to where they're up, and the price of gas and eggs and milk and everything continue to stay elevated. I know they've come down a little, but they're way elevated over what they were two years ago. Um, you know, a, a, a person making sixteen, fifty, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen dollars an hour um, with two kids and a car and a house or an apartment, um, there's not much left over at the end of the day and when prices and the cost of things and trying to explain to my employees that the same pinch that's happening on them is also happening on my business and it's not it, it the business doesn't have the uh the resource to just give everybody raises to make up for the difference so trying to manage how to continue to try to support my employees financially and give them what I can, which is not enough to make up for the difference, but explain also why I can't 
and get them to buy in to, if we take care of the company, it will be here to take care of us. If we abuse the company, it won't be here for any of us. And get them to buy into a corporate macro mentality when they themselves are getting pinched. That is a challenge. Are you trying to learn about it? Do you talk about it with everybody? I mean, do you have kind of company meetings or you don't? Absolutely. Um, we, we do. Um, it's uh, my employees from my executive vice president of sales and procurement all the way down to the guy that empties the garbage cans. We have monthly meetings and everybody gets the same information and it's accurate and it's real about the state of the company um, and what the company is able to do and what the company is not able to do and why. And if after that information, you recognize there's a ceiling for you, we love you, but we will also support you in finding something better for you. Um, but that is the reality of our business. I you just treat people like human beings, treat people like grown adults, give them the information and support their decisions one way or the other. But like I said, word gets around. Yeah. People like working for our business because they're not treated like a number. Mr. Question, besides employees not being able to understand the mindset of a founder CEO, meaning that when they're pinched, they don't, it's hard for them to understand that you're being pinched to as a company because it's easy to look at the guy in the corner office and think what you're thinking. But if you were to give um, a mindset to young professionals, striving entrepreneurs, people thinking about starting a business today, there's more people trying to start a business who don't want to go work at an entry level place, coming out of college. There's more online creators and self-learning going on online. It's more than ever. Um, but what's something about being an owner of a company that you know that as an employee, you just can't understand unless you're in your shoes. But if you had to articulate like one thing that like, man, I wish they would just know, understand this. I wish they would just know this. It would make things a little bit easier when it comes to the building, the trust, when it comes to our performance and it comes to not just, you know, it's easy to kill the leader when something goes wrong. <laughs> the first one people look at. Are you willing to take nothing and pay everybody in your company? And if you're not willing to do that, don't start. Uh, say that one more time. Are you willing to take zero dollars out of your company and make sure everybody that works for you is whole? If you are unwilling to do that, don't even start because there's not a single business that doesn't come into difficult times. And the question is, are you willing for the sake of your company and the people in it to make sure everybody in your company that is working hard and deserving stays whole. And even if that means you pay no pay out of your business for a period of time to get over the hump, if you are unwilling to do that, don't go into business. Wow. If you're willing to do it, you probably have a 70% chance of being successful. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. I mean, you started your business in 2001. Not an easy time to start. I mean, September 1. Wow. wow. Of 2001. Right. I'm in the lumber business. So we went through the 2008 thing. We went through COVID. We're going, I mean, interest rates are going through the roof. Think about what's going on in building right now. And if you're not building stuff, you don't need wood. Right. So there are all kinds. I mean, the two toughest things in the world to do are commodity and manufacturing. And I'm the idiot that's in both. All right. It's hard work. It, it really is. And, you know, we, we trade on very, 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 
very slim margins and lots of high expense and labor. You know, it's an old brick and mortar model. It's 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 tough. Um, there are years where the the market goes right and you got a bunch of low priced inventory and you kill it. And there are years that you get absolutely scalded, and you have to keep a war chest in your balance sheet to weather the bad times. And then you got to be really vigilant with the good times, but you're only as good as your people. And so when, when the crap hits the fan, there have been many times where Lisa and I do not receive a paycheck, but I make sure all my key people, all the people in my organization are whole. And you have to be willing to do that. The company is not the, a company is not the building or the name or the equipment. A company is a group of people. That's what a company is. Think of the army term, a company, a company. So if you really want to build a company, a group of people, if you really want to protect a company, the group of people, you have to remember as the leader, you have to serve them. So they come before you do. Beautiful. The same question I asked you before about three years looking out for your company. What has to happen for your company three years from now for you to be happy with your progress? We try to grow revenue year over year, 10%. So hundred million in sales. Um, and I still remember I was broke when I started this thing. So I still have a little bit of term debt. So if in three years we could go revenue up to about a hundred million and I could be debt free, which I think we could be if things go the right way, ball bounce the right way, three years, that would be great because debt free means, um, that I would, uh, have about 35, $40,000 a month in interest expense, uh, no longer going to interest fix, but becoming free cash flow, which would allow me to continue to build, but also take a portion of that and reward, uh, a number of people who've been in my business for a long time who've helped me get there. You love what you do. Do I love what I do? Yeah. I love, I love my industry. I, we trade $150,000, $200,000 contracts routinely on a phone call and a handshake. And I love that. I mean, that kind of fits this guy, right? Wouldn't surprise you. Um, I, I love the people that I work with. Uh, I love the company I built. I'm, if there's anything that I'm not 100% humble on is I am very proud of what we've built. This is a hard industry to be successful in, and we've done it well in 20 years. Um, what I don't like is uh, constantly having to fight a false environmental narrative about the hardwood industry in the United States. You would be shocked to know that there's 60% more harvestable timber in the United States today than there was 30 years ago. Most people think we're cutting down all our trees. The truth is there's 60% more stumpage growing in the United States today than there was 30 years ago because the United States is the absolute best country in the world doing professionally managed forest products. The other truth is harvesting trees at a mature age actually grows stumpage. When you take one big tree out in the canopy, there's three saplings underneath it that grow and that mature trees, uh, respiration system is exactly the opposite of humans. You inhale oxygen and exhale CO2. A tree 
inhales CO2 and exhales oxygen. So a growing healthy tree, the only way the CO2 releases from a tree is a forest fire or rot. So if you take a mature healthy tree and harvest it and you make furniture out of it or molding or doors or cabinets or flooring, all of the carbon it ever soaked up in its life remains there in perpetuity forever. And growing your forest grows oxygen. So one of the greatest net carbon winners is truly growing and cultivating forests. But if you don't cultivate them and you let them die and rot, the CO2 escapes. Or if you don't cultivate them and you don't build log roads, which create fire breaks like they do out west, and a lightning strike happens, they burn forever because that's poor forestry management. And all that CO2 and all that loss due to fire is 50 times, literally, not an exaggerate, 50 times more destructive to the forest land than is properly managing cultivating forests. The problem is that story is not told to our public. And so our public is operating on an inaccurate, untrue narrative about our industry. And I hate having to fight that all the time. Yeah, it's tough. I worked uh, at my company I had for 25 years was a collection agency. So you can imagine the stereotype of the collection agency is not so positive. And we yeah. blackmailed and sued by attorneys all the time. So, you know, there, there are certain industries where there is a perception and or a lack of knowledge and there's bad seeds out there in every industry. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an education thing. People need to be educated about things so that they can't just assume that they know what they think and what they think is wrong. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because I don't know anything about your industry, but I could imagine what I've learned in business is that it's hard. <laughs> it is hard. It's hard. It is hard. Yeah. There are sleepless nights. And I just, I, I genuinely believe, and I'm not trying to come off like the nicest guy on the face of the planet, but I genuinely believe a company is the people, not the bricks and mortar machinery. And your job as the leader of a company, as the CEO, is to take care of the company. Because if you take care of the company, it will be there to take care of you. Which means you have to take care of your people, even if you have to suffer to do it. And if you have that mentality, I think you got a chance. If you don't have that mentality and you somehow think like a turkey person that the company is there to serve you so you can have a mountain home and a jet and a house on the beach and damn be everybody else, I do not think you will be successful long term. One last business question. So your position as someone who started this company, how and maybe talk more recently over the past few years or maybe over the past, you know, decade you know, how has your position day-to-day -day changed in the company as you've grown are you the visionary are you the operator who who are you in the company well hey, for it's a great question and for many years i was the everything i mean i had good people around me but you know yeah i was the weekend installer of used equipment and then the salesman in the evening and then the operator in the afternoon and then as you grow you morph and now I am really fortunate to have a, a, a core group of people who've been with me 15, 20 years. So I have an ops manager, I have a vice president of sales and procurement, I have a CFO handling the back office. They're great. They have good middle management under them. And so what I do most of the day now is I'm looking at uh, reports that come from each of our production lines so that I can, in a snapshot, understand what our flow, what our throughput is, what our downtime is. And, and so that's how I manage 
that's how I managed to keep up with the day-to-day of the business. My interaction is mostly with a handful of people um, that I described to you. And then what I spend the rest of my time doing is really thinking about how am I going to get that 10% revenue growth? What machinery we're going to add? What efficiencies we're going to do? And it is liberating to be freed from the minutia of the hammer it all day, 10 hours a day, day to day, to be able to step back, breathe a little, and think about what can we do next to be successful? What can we do next to be more efficient? What can we do next to be cutting edge? What technology can we find? What new equipment can we find? What what new species or grades can we incorporate to our product mix? And so I spend time, we have a rolling one, three, and five-year plan. They deal with the one year, I deal with the three and five. Does AI have any impact on your industry yet? Yeah, so lumber is just, if you cut a tree into a bunch of pieces of wood, some boards are clear, some boards have not, some boards have, so lumber gets graded and it's graded by a human being. And it takes, it's, you go to class for uh, six months and you get certified and the rule book in our industry is 200 pages thick and you learn every word of it. And you are a highly skilled person to sit there and grade lumber. But if you're looking at board after board after board for eight hours a day, five days a week, 52, you know, you make mistakes. Human beings make mistakes and it's exhausting. And we are starting to have introduced into our industry AI automatic grade readers that's a, uh, like a three-dimensional scanner that when the boards pass, it calculates the grade on the board completely accurately every time. And the interesting thing about it is over time it gets better as it catalogs more and more and more and more and more infinite pictures of boards and the grade, it starts to understand the range of grades better. So it gets more and more and more accurate and it allows you to uh, actually do stuff downline from the grading in terms of ripping and chopping to even more optimize the value of the fiber. And so that is just now starting my industry. Um, but it's expensive and it's, uh, I would say it's really fresh. It's one, two, three years old. And so I, I'm, while I'm very interested in that, I'm going to need a couple more years for it to prove itself to me. Um, and like all technology, it gets cheaper over time, hopefully. So, um, but yeah, that is something we, we are looking do, at. Do the football players, do the kids at the school, do they talk about AI? Do they do? Cause I know like in my kid's school, it's a big deal right now. All of a sudden kids are getting caught cheating with the AI, but is in your school, do you even hear about it? There are people talking yeah, about I mean, it. Hey, they talk about so much stuff. I don't even understand, but TikTok and uh, whatever the heck it is. Yes. Yeah. Kids are talking about it. I mean, it's exciting and new. Right. Um, and of course, old school me, I'm like, you need to watch this Arnold Schwarzenegger movie from where I grew up because AI tried to take over the world one day and I'm a little worried about this stuff. And they're all like, coach, you're so stupid. You're old school. Shut up. But you know, I don't. <laughs> you're great. So great. Oh man, that's so great. Okay. So let's wrap it up. So, um, the message that, uh, and it's funny, as, as I'm listening to you talk and as I'm, as I'm thinking about your initiative, the social impact part of your life, 
and trying to be a catalyst to try to wake people up. It's, it's what it sounds like to me, right? Just, just maybe not stroke a chat, but actually do something and take, take care of other, making a difference in someone else's life. I mean, I think that's what I hear your message is. It, it is. Army of Normal Folks was released four and a half months ago. We are brand new. We release every Tuesday. Um, and um, we are interviewing, you know, uh, pick somebody. Uh, John Ponder is a guy who spent his life in jail. He decided in jail he was he had a different idea about how to keep people from being in jail. He robbed three banks. He was going to go to jail for 21 years. He got let out by five years. When he got back to Las Vegas, the guy that picked him up was the FBI agent that arrested him, who said, my wife and I have been praying for you. We saw good in you. John Ponder started this thing called Hope for Prisoners in Vegas. The recidivism rate in the United States is somewhere around 80%. He has 7%. 93% of the people that go through his organization do not go back to jail, end up with a job and a house. The secret sauce, he matches up the people in his program with law enforcement. And the Las Vegas Police Department, Las Vegas FBI, Las Vegas Sheriff's Department, Las Vegas Crime Line, these people volunteer their time to mentor a, a returning citizen from prison to help them. And, and, and it's great. But one of the greatest things about it is law enforcement start to see the very people that they arrest every day as human beings. And the human beings start seeing law enforcement, they start seeing behind the badge and they start seeing the people. And so now this is harmony starting to exist in Las Vegas between two communities that in our culture right now are at extraordinarily big odds. John Ponder is a normal dude. John Ponder is just a guy who created something that you will never see on Fox or CNBC or, or, or W, I mean, we're telling those stories and, and the, and, and it's, so you go to a, Ann Malum, who at 27 years old was bulimic, the way she dealt with stress is she ran. One day she was running by a homeless shelter or she ran by this homeless shelter all the time. One day after running by it 20 times, some of the guys on the porch yelled down on her, all you do all day is run around. She yelled back, all you day all day is sit on your ass on the porch. And she kept running. Couldn't quit thinking about it because her bulimia and everything stemmed from her father was an addict and gambled their entire family's money away. She went back the next day and said, I want to start a running club in your homeless shelter. I said, homeless people don't run. That's stupid. She said, try it. Seven years later, this thing is, is called Back on My Feet. It's in 17 different cities, and it has gotten 87 former homeless people jobs and living in their homes through learning discipline in their lives through running, because one thing you can't cheat on is running. So that's her story. There are stories like this every week, and every single guest shares their personal contact information, So, and as well as do I. And so here's the idea. It's entertaining. It'll make you cry. It'll make you laugh. It's well-produced. Hopefully it's inspirational. But again, if you listen long enough, you're going to hear a story that agrees with your passion and your discipline, and you're going to see opportunity. 
And I had so many people come up to me before an army of normal folks say, Bill, I love all that you've done. I would like to help, but how? And I, I never really had the answer for how. I mean, I'd get people's inhibitions and fears and self-confidence issues and who am I and all of that. I never, now I have the answer to how, because here's how. You listen long enough, you're going to be entertained, but you're eventually going to find something that matches your discipline, your passion for an opportunity. And you're going to have a literal blueprint in a story of what you can do. And then you're going to have the architect of the blueprints contact information that you can call and say, hey, right. I'd like to do what you did. Will you walk me through it? And they will. And can you imagine if we had a million or two million weekly listeners, how many people will hear opportunities where their discipline, their passion matches opportunities they see in their little corner of the world where they have this community of philanthropic people, normal people doing extraordinary things in their neck of the woods, despite their normal person, kid troubles and financial trouble. These people are not doing things because they're in government or they're part of some NGO or they've been to Qui or they're trust fund babies and have money to give out. They're not doing things because of how great they are. They're doing things despite the troubles they have in their life that normal people have. So they're no different than you. And you can talk to them and hear their stories and employ your passion, your discipline in a place that you still need. Can you imagine the effect we could have on this country if you had to many of those people? Unbelievable. You know, the cool thing about that, and I'm about to give you, I, I love giving and I love adding value to people's lives. I, I have a lot in common with you. And I want you to know, as we wrap things up, I heard you say something during our interview that um, I'm big on collaboration. Because it's great to inspire and then go do something. But when you can find ways to give someone something that they can benefit from, and then you can use something that they have and, and you bring it together, that 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 type of leadership to me is just, it even amps me up even more. So um, just a little side note, when I um, um, when I was growing my collection agency, I was seeing about 80,000 people a month throwing in collections. And it was just, you know, you see people at their worst, you know, people with financial hardships like you can never imagine and sudden job loss, especially during times of COVID and during times where recessions hit harder. So I started a second company where we help people get jobs and we built a career development app and we put live- For the very people you were collecting from. Uh -huh. I love that, dude. That's and awesome. And I took it even a step further. So my collection team, we had about up to 100 people. We were helping all the people on the phone, trying to help them get jobs. Like most people hate their jobs, which is sad. I sold my collection agency after 25 years and I kept this company called Restart and I went to other companies and I said, look, you have a stake and people want to be able to pay you or you have employees who are using your company as a stepping stone or don't work out. And I started getting sponsors for people to sponsor this and they basically white labeled this app and then they were helping people get jobs so for free by the way it's free so i want you to know and you could write this down that anytime you have any of your employees who are a good fit and you want to help them you know there's only so much you can do you you tap into your network you might know someone you might know someone but if you don't what are you gonna do how are you gonna help someone get a job and now you can and our call just gave you that power, that collaboration. You can send them to joinrestart.com. It's free for them. They'll get hooked up with a career advisor, personalized job recommendations for them, AI technology involved. We actually will apply for them. So they don't have to go through the whole process, which is the biggest pain. You know, as well as I know, hiring as many people as you've hired. 
The process to get a job is brutal and people don't know what they're doing and they just spam their resume to people and they don't know how to interview. So we give them and I pour all my entrepreneur, everything into a community app and we just give it to them. And do you have any idea what the success rate is? Oh my gosh, you kid, my collection agency, my collection agency, we helped thousands of people, but we have probably, I never cared because my, when I started, I had a girl who just wanted to like, she wanted to change people's lives and people heard them like, yeah, change people's lives. And so I went to her office one day and they said, you're going to do it. I said, you're off your collection desk. I want you to call every single person you can and just tell them you're going to help them get a job. And she came to me after the first day crying because she's like, no one wants my help. I go, keep searching, you'll find them. And then she got the one and she helped her and got it. And I stood up in front of my company, told her her story. And you can imagine the tears rolling. And then it just caught like wildfire, right? Because then all of a sudden everyone just wanted to help. And no one wanted to be a collector. No one wants to be a truck driver. No one wants to be a forklift. They want to be part of something. They want purpose. And, and you as a leader, you've given your team purpose. And they see that you care and you're building trust. And those, to me, those are the, te- those are the pillars. That's what makes a leader a leader. And uh, boy, when you can collaborate with other companies, and when I, I actually just sold that company. I kept a little piece of it, but I sold to a client who fell in love with it. He's a financial services company and he helps people get out of debt and he's helping people get jobs. And so now for you, just so you know, you can, you can offer it to people and just tell people, your, your partner, Chad, go to joinrestart.com. They'll help you. They'll give you career advisors. They'll give you job. They'll give you opportunities. And I love that. I think, to, I think to your point, you know, you can have all the good intentions in the world, but unless you're actually doing something, right? And you're, you're actually doing something. Like, I used to think that, how bad do you want it? And I remember one of my friends said to me, it doesn't matter how bad you want it. What are you willing to do to do it? What, what are you doing? That's exactly right. And so I hear your message and I resonate big time with it. And, um, you know, I'm all for stroking a check to try to help organizations out. People need more than that. And they need to know, they need to know you care. And then you shoot, you shoot for the heart, right? You know, and, and I think uh, when, when you, when you see those intentions and I see that in you, and I really like that, I like that about you and I don't even know you and I like that about you, but I, it's real. And there's something that just is very attractive. And I'm sure that's why so many people look, fell in love with you your movie, your book. Your podcast, um, I wish you nothing but an abundance of success with your efforts. And I will certainly share as much as I possibly can with either, you know, our magazine, our audience, uh, my network, because I think uh, it's a great message and it's needed now more today than ever before. It really is. People are so self-centered today because our world puts us in front of a phone, in front of a computer and keeps us glued to seeing things the way they want us to see things. And unless you step out of that, and get jolted and your, your initiative jolts, it jolts, the story jolts. And, uh, I'm glad I get to be a part of it now because I think it's a, it's a strong message. So I, I really love you for it. Man, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I just want people to join an army of normal things, yeah, join, you know, and subscribe to it and just listen, be entertained. And along the way, maybe you'll be inspired and maybe we can do some good and don't be a daggum turkey person in the meantime. <laughs> It's such a good message. It's such a good message. You know, there's a lot to be said about marketing, good marketing, right? And it's a good message. I mean, it really is a good message. So uh, kudos to you. Nothing but the best. I appreciate it. Sorry we got cut off at the beginning. That was a that was a going ahead and move on my part. I'm still learning myself. Real quick, what advice do you have for people about doing podcasts? Because right now, lots of young professionals getting into this. Very difficult, not so easy. What have you learned real quick that you can leave us with that kind of just some... some wisdom? The greatest thing about podcasts is all you need is a computer and a place to sit. There's no barrier to entry. The worst thing about podcasts is all you need is a computer and a place to sit. There's no barrier to entry. There's about 17 
billion of these things run around and ciphering through it all to find the good content versus the bad content. And I, I will tell you, my luck was before we ever released, I heart knew of my story and heard I was doing a podcast, reached out. So we got a distributor that was everything. Um, but the truth that I would say, uh, about beyond that is, um, much like what we've done today, I really believe my kids have told me the most interesting podcasts are, are where you feel like you're sitting in the room with two people having a chat and they're real, they're authentic. Uh, they're, it's where you get the little gems of advice that aren't prescripted because they just happen because they pop in your mind because the conversations that you're having. And, um, I would just, it, along those lines, I would say, um, be real, be authentic, um, and don't try too hard, um, just be yourself. And, uh, if yourself is good enough, it'll get popular. If yourself isn't good enough, then you probably need to work on yourself and quit working on a podcast. Well, you gave us plenty of nuggets today. So thank you so much, Bill, for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, so thanks a lot. Been a lot of fun. You too.